Okay, and the story begins. All right. Okay, we are on the third part of chapter 29, page 336 in our books. So let's let's um, let's understand the flow here. What's going on in this chapter? What's the theme of this chapter? The theme of this chapter is now. Let, let's take a step back. Let's remember what is the Tanya. The Tanya started off. It wasn't always a book. It was the Alter Rebbe's advice that he formulated into a book. But people would seek counsel from the author, from the Alter Rebbe, counsel in their spiritual, psychosocial, religious life. And the Al-Tarebbe became such a popular counselor, coach, if you will. Um, he had to put all his advice in a book because the, the, the lines were just overwhelming and he couldn't tend to everybody. And a book would, and that's what the Tanya was. Tanya was his advice to people going through real issues. Which is incredible to think about because there's these are Hasidim in Ukraine and Russia 200 and whatever years ago who are experiencing these are people that grew up in the shtetl you know in the ghetto don't have much exposure but they're experiencing very similar issues to that which we experience growing up in the Bay Area living in the Bay Area in a more exposed environment. And the Al-Tarib is addressing very important human issues that everybody experiences, unless you're a tzaddik, everybody experiences these issues. And the issue that we're dealing with in this chapter is I'm desensitized to the point that although I understand my heritage, my Jewish heritage, conceptually, it doesn't do anything for me emotionally. I'm not getting inspired. I'm not, I'm just, just not working. It's not working. So the Al-Tarebbe's advice was follow what the Zohar says. One of the earliest books of Kabbalah, which says the log is not lighting on fire. You either need more fire or you need a softer, more uh, receptive log. We're not catching on fire. We're not getting inspired. We need more fire. We need more inspiration, but we also have to be more receptive. We're desensitized. We're, we're, we're not so receptive because we've been desensitized. How do we make ourselves receptive? So that was last week's discussion, right? We had five different vulnerable conversations that we need to have with ourselves, with ourselves. And it doesn't necessarily need to be all of these five, but whichever one or combination of these work for you. And these vulnerable conversations will humble us, making us more receptive to our souls. Because before we have that vulnerable, deep, difficult conversation with ourselves, we're arrogant and, and instead of the body, because of our arrogance, instead of the body containing the soul, the body was obstructing the soul. That was last week and two weeks ago's um, discussion, right? Last week we concluded with something fascinating. I find this to be fascinating. Every time I read this line in Tanya, it just blows my mind because I don't know why. It just does. 
here's what he says. The, um, the second paragraph on 336. There's some interesting things to talk about here. Second bold paragraph 336. What are the results we can hope for when following all of the above advice? When we have these deep, humbling, vulnerable conversations with ourselves, what is the result? Ideally, we're more receptive to our soul, which means practically through this, you will help the eyes of your divine soul to be enlightened by the non-dual reality of God's infinite light. Your eyes will be more illuminated, will see life differently from a very different angle, not from the body perspective, not from the animal soul perspective, not from the self-oriented perspective, but from the divine soul perspective. Here's what he says, with the clarity, this is what gets me every time, with the clarity and certainty normally associated with actual sensory vision, without the uncertainty which inevitably becomes through using deduction and logic alone. Okay, beautiful translation. It's not the literal translation. I'm going to translate it literally. Our eyes will be illuminated with the unity of God. Sensory vision, good. And not just hearing and understanding alone. Which he refers to as through using deduction and logic, and we'll talk about that in a second. But if we really work on ourselves, in making ourselves, humbling ourselves so we're more receptive, what happens is we begin to see rather than hear. That's what it says in the literal text. What's the difference between seeing and hearing? Any thoughts? Seeing seems to be more absolute. Like you can't interpret, you, you know, what you see is what you get kind of thing. You can't see something that's not there, something, you know, beyond, almost beyond interpretation kind of thing. Okay, good. There's also the saying, seeing is believing. Whenever hearing is believing. Right. Good. Good. All right. Another one, a picture is worth a thousand words. Right. When you see something, like, like Mike said, you see what you get. What you get, what you see is what you get. You see the whole thing. There's a certain certainty. There's a certain belief that you have. Seeing is believing. Nobody could talk you out of what you said. What, sorry, what you saw. You can be talking out of what you've heard. Oh, you misunderstood, right? You didn't understand it properly. You didn't interpret properly. There's a lot more. It's much more challenging to process what you hear than to process what you see. A good teacher uses visuals, not just, um, unlike myself, not just rambles. <laughs> That's awkward. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You, you need to have more props when you're talking to us. Yes. <laughs> I just put myself in a tight corner. No, okay. um, but but <laughs> it, it, it's a lot more work to process what you hear than to process what you see. There's a rule in Jewish law in halacha. A witness can't become a judge. Why? Because the judge is objective. 
considers both sides, makes an objective ruling based on what the law is. But a witness already saw it. Once that witness saw it, there's no such thing as being objective anymore. He totally bought in. You can't talk him out and convince him the other way. Maybe you saw wrong. There's no such thing. And that's why halachically, a witness can't become a judge. Tying that back to what we're learning here, when we um, um, humble ourselves, when we develop this receptiveness, if you will, we begin to not just hear God, so to speak, we begin to see him. In other words, we don't just believe that there's a God, we know there's a God. We don't just believe he's our reality, and he's our purpose, and that's what we're all about, and that we have a soul. We know it. You can't talk me out of what I know. You can only talk Hearing is I heard about God, but if I see it, there's a certain level of certainty that nobody can talk me out of. Just to illustrate this point, I'm going to share the screen with you, with, uh, with you guys. Um, or at least I'll try to. How do I do this? And I'll, I'll just share a comedy show I used to watch a long time ago. Already had this once, and one of the characters would say, "Listen to me now and believe me later." So, kind of <laughs> like same idea. Exactly. And others, because it takes time to, process. it'll take more time to process. On where are we? Okay, sorry. Uh, okay, can you guys see the screen? Yeah. Okay, can you see my cursor? I just don't know what what appears on the yeah. other side. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay, this is a verse from Exodus twenty fifteen. The context of this verse is describing the the dramatic scene at Mount Sinai when the Jews received the Torah. The Torah says something weird, <laughs> seemingly nonsensical. All the people saw the sounds, referring to the thunder and the lightning, the blare of the horn, the great shofar, the blast, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they fell back and they stood at a distance. It was so overwhelming, they had to take a step back. All the people saw the sounds. What does that mean they saw sounds? How could you see sounds? So Rashi says, text two. Someone is going to say something? Oh, well, uh, Rashi will say it better than I was going to, so let's go for that. Okay. <laughs> See what Rashi says. Okay, let's see. And but you'll tell me if it's in line with what you were thinking. They saw that which is usually heard. Something which is impossible to see on any other occasion. What does that mean? Saw that which is usually heard. Well, I was going to say that they. I was going to say. Oh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, John, you go go for it. You're you're gonna let me dig my hole if I. (laughs) 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 I I was going to say that um, they saw the sound wave. You don't normally see sound waves. Okay, that's not what I was going to say. Okay, what were you going to say, Mike? Uh, I I was going to say that. Uh, that there's no there, there's no interpreting God's word or anything about God. God is absolute. 
So whether you heard it or saw it, it couldn't be any clearer than seeing it. So you may as well say that you've seen it. Okay, good. Uh, good. So that which so like Rashi says, they saw that which was usually heard. Normally, what you would have to process and interpret and hope you get it right and hope you understand the whole thing. And, and they just saw it. They had this absolute clarity. And that's what happens to us when we follow the steps in this chapter. Our eyes illuminate. And normally what we usually hear about. Which means we we understand that there's a soul. We understand that there's a God. We understand the vision, the purpose. No, we see it. We see it. We have that same certainty as if we were to literally see it. Seeing isn't believing. It's that the believing becomes seeing. Our faith becomes so firm. We begin to see life that way from those lenses. Which leads me or leads us, I should say. To an insight on the morning blessings that we say. Every morning we begin Tfilat HaShachar. There's a list of 15 or sorry, 15 or 18. I already forgot uh, blessings that we say. Um, thanking God for what he gives us every morning. Um, this is in the sitter on page blank. Forgot to write the page number and I don't know it offhand. <laughs> uh, seven. Yeah, some, somewhere in the beginning. And there's three, the first three blessings that we say. Thank you, God, who gave the rooster insight to distinguish between day and night. And we'll tie this all in soon. That's page six. Six. Okay. Oh, you, there we go. You got to sit in. Okay. Perfect. Let's see if I can write that in. No. Uh, so while while you're writing, um, can you also change the title of this page to twenty nine C instead of B? <laughs> Thank you. Sure. There we go. Okay. Thank you, God, who gave the rooster insight to distinguish between day and night. Back in Talmudic times or even earlier when this blessing was established, people used to wake up by the crow of the rooster. The Hebrew word for rooster in this blessing, the sechvi, also means the mind, the heart. Thank you, God, for giving us this uh, intuition to distinguish between day and night. Another interpretation, though, a deeper interpretation, there's multiple layers of Torah. Between day, the, dark, the, the light, illumination, spiritual clarity, faith, and night, darkness, klipa, um, perversion, if you will, the animal soul perspective. Thank you, God, for giving me this ability to distinguish between the two. Because what happens is when I wake up, um, Talmud says when one goes to sleep, a person is considered to be 160th dead. The soul goes up. Part of the soul that goes up is from the divine soul. It's going up to recharge, but now the body's partially dead. And dead means not just in the by uh, in the scientific, not just scientifically, but spiritually as well. Spiritual life is associated with the divine soul, with spiritual vitality, simcha, joy, connecting to God. And at night we're dead. means we're not feeling our souls we're feeling ourselves 
Knight were more of a body than a person. Or resting body than more than a person, relatively. Which means we wake up in the morning, and the first thing we notice is ourselves. Do I want to get out of bed? How tired am I? How am I feeling? That's the first thing we notice. We notice ourselves, not our mission, not our purpose. So we have to say, Moda Ani, thank you, God, for giving me my soul, for returning it to me. And then we say, God, thank you for giving me the ability to see the difference between day and night, between good and bad. Can you guys hear me? Okay, sorry. Um, between good and bad, between divinity, between the divine soul and the animal soul. Next blessing, God opens the eyes of the blind. In the literal sense, thank you, God, for giving me vision. But thank you, God, for giving me the type of vision that I really need to contribute to this world, to make this world a home for him. It's a divine soul perspective. And again, these things take work to develop, but we have that potential. Thank you, God, the next blessing, who straightens the bent. You know, we sleep curled up, our head and feet are level. We're more like an animal. We wake up, we stand up on, on, all, uh, on two feet. Thank you, God, for straightening me. I don't see life like an animal looking down. All I see is the ground. All I see is the food that I'm looking for. But my head looks forward, my head looks up. I can see that there's way more than I could comprehend. There's a purpose to life, to existence, beyond what my mind can understand. And I thank you, God, for allowing me to experience that. Again, these are all similar. These are all describing the experience we're trying to um, attain. Attain or obtain? Attain. Attain, okay. Obtain is you get, attain is you work for, right? I was confused too. This is the experience we're trying to attain. Clarity of the soul so we can see life from the divine soul perspective, not just the animal soul perspective, which is really the entire, the general goal of Tanya. How can I see life from a more beautiful perspective, from a deeper perspective, not from a Klippa perspective, from a body perspective, but from a soul perspective? And this is alluded to in the first three blessings that we say. And this is something we develop um, as we try to implement this advice in our chapter. Make sense? Yes. Okay. Um, questions, comments, controversy before we move on? Anyone? Oh, good. I'm wondering if we lost John. John, you still there? John, John? Yeah. had some internet connections. Not sure. Technical difficulties. He's still present. He's just not there. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Oh, he's back. John, you good? Yeah. You I don't know what happened. My internet went out, so I filled over to my uh, hotspot. I'll figure out the internet later. Okay, well, welcome back. Welcome back. Okay. So, the reason, 
So ideally, our eyes have been illuminated. We've been inspired. We're more receptive. Why were we unreceptive? Because the animal soul was obstructing us. Right now, why does illuminating ourselves get rid of that obstruction? How does that work? What are the mechanics here? He says something interesting. Bottom of, or sorry, the middle of three thirty-six, um, right under where it says section seven. Toward the bottom of the page. It's the third to last bold paragraph. The reason why these conversations, being vulnerable with the animal soul, humbling it, making it more receptive, is effective in illuminating ourselves so we can see from a deeper perspective, is because in reality the sitra akhra, the klipa, this divine energy which jades us so we judge life by what we see, not by what is, has no substance at all. Reality of Klippa, Klippa, the animal soul doesn't really have substance. I'm going to skip to the next bold paragraph, and that's why it's compared to darkness. Since darkness has no substance at all, and and will be effortlessly banished by light. All we have to do when we feel unreceptive, when we feel uninspired, is remind ourselves that whatever is obstructing us is just darkness. It's not a true existence. And this is interesting because um, uh, I'm, I'm I, I, I sorry. Uh, what, what I'm struggling with here is like um, <coughs> excuse me. Where it says that the Sitra Akra has no substance at all. And yet, I think a little bit further down, we're going to read that uh, the Sitra the Akra has been given power by God. And when, you know, so, so um, and, and God can revoke that power um, and does so when. He sees our our struggling against it and our overcoming it. He takes, you know, God takes away the the power that he has temporarily provided the Sitra Akra. So I well, I, I kind of consider that to be, um, subs, uh, you know, what's the word? Well, that's that's almost I think it's substantive. Substantive. I can't remember, I can't remember the right word, but it's something like that. Meaning like it it has substance. Because God has temporarily given the Sitra Akhra power um, and revokes it, right? So it's, I, I just struggle with that a little bit. It doesn't have independent substance. True. Yes. Yes. Klippa doesn't have independent substance. Agreed. The only reason why God gives it in the uh, temporary substance, the ability to jade us, the ability to blind us, ability to desensitize us is to motivate us. If we didn't have Klippa, if we didn't have darkness, would we be motivated to shine our light? Or would we just be shining on autopilot? Once there's darkness, we have to shine. We 
have to make a choice. Am I going to shine or not? If there's no darkness, you just have that soul, no animal soul. You're just shining on autopilot. There's no point. Make sense? Yeah. Let, let's take a look on 337, um, where you were referencing middle paragraph only in the case of your divine soul's holy power of Chachma God granted special permission to the Sitra Achra of the animal soul to have the ability to exert itself against the divine soul now if you're accustomed to writing in your book I would underline this why is the divine soul why is Sitra Achra why is the animal soul given permission to exert itself to prevail itself so that you will be inspired to overcome it god created darkness for one reason for us to light it up this applies to global darkness but it applies to our own personal darkness as well there's times where i'm not feeling inspired about my judaism i'm feeling uninterested about my judaism God put that force in me so I can intentionally develop excitement about Judaism and not just be on autopilot. I think it's just such a powerful lesson. As soon as we become intentional, the light illuminates and the darkness dissipates. Because it served its function. It has no more permission to prevail. It just disappears. I think this is such an important lesson. I, I just I think this is something we could just sit and think about and talk about. Just that those few lines for hours and hours, days and days, and say a few lachaims together. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. I recommend taking tomorrow morning before your morning prayers, before davening, take out your tanya and just think about that for a few minutes. So we have an inspired davening, a fiery davening, a davening that's going to, again, do exactly what we're learning, illuminate our souls to dissipate that darkness. That's why God planted the darkness there, to motivate us to put in more fire, to crank up the light. Darkness has served its function, it goes, it leaves. Now, we're not going to be a tzaddik, it's not going to totally leave. For a tzaddik, it totally leaves, it's not going to happen, it's going to come back. Because God wants us to again put in more fire, put in more effort. So we don't go on autopilot. In, uh, the sorry, the one more time. The purpose of the coronavirus. Bring in the darkness <laughs> so that we can overcome it. Perhaps, yeah. It's a very big wave of darkness. Um, you know, affecting so many areas of our lives. Um, you know, we can't go to the synagogue anymore. We can't go to shul. We can't be social with each other. It's a wave of darkness. It is. And it's an opportunity to illuminate it. You're right. That, that, that's a great... 
it's a very timely um, example. So, so um, it's actually. I was going to ask you a question, and then I and then I withheld it because I thought I knew the answer, but now Sharon's question makes me think I don't know the answer. So, since since Sharon asked the question and you answered it differently than I thought you were, I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and ask my question. Um, <clears throat> so, when when we were talking about the lightness dispelling the darkness, um, I was. I was debating in my head, are we talking about a, a personal struggle with ourselves or are we, are we also including external struggles? Um, and, and so, you know, this whole, I, you know, this whole idea of, okay, we got this coronavirus out there that's really kind of cast a shadow on the world and, and, and that has its, that, you know, it makes its way into us individually as well, and so we may have additional personal struggles and that we need to overcome. Um, and so now I'm going to lead to my question, which is, you know, if 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 uh, if it's our, uh, I'll just spit it out: the Holocaust, right? So so that was an in, um, unbelievable uh, shadow on the on the world, and and but but it's it's something that was not inflicted by Jews. So uh, meaning like uh, how what what about that should should we have had to personally um, uh, improve ourselves about to make that go away or not happen? That, and that, and then I withheld my question because thinking, then I was thinking, okay, well maybe it wasn't meant for something external like that because. You know, um, that was that was external evil. That wasn't, you know, a Jew who made a wrong decision that needs to somehow dispel the darkness of that bad decision that that that, that he that you know this Jew has made, right? So I'm, I'm 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 so now I'm back to thinking. Well, is is this? Are we really talking about an internal thing, or are we talking about an external thing also? Because you know, you know see, I'm going with that. There yeah. Are a lot of yeah. Good question. There are a lot of stories of, I mean, the Holocaust was horrible, of course, but there are stories of people, even in that darkness, who bought, brought light into the most intense darkness. Like, you know, there's a story about um, Sadiq that had held onto a piece of matzah for a year so that he could um, have matzah for Pesach. So. Still a dark, very dark time, obviously. But I think bottom line, when there's darkness, what's our response going to be? Bring light to it. I think that's the bottom line. I I think that applies to both personal darkness as well as global darkness. There's the small world, which is the person, and there's the global world, and the two worlds are correlated correlated and when we bring light into our own personal world and our own personal struggles it brings light to the world at large um, and, and they come hand in hand I, I think bottom line it's and, and and like John said you see many stories where th 
people suffering within the concentration camps, yet trying to be a beacon of light, trying to be a source of inspiration, um, and especially post-Holocaust, trying to bring light back into the world, restore the light that was once there. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's like an extension of of the of the general concept of of bringing light into a dark place to dispel the darkness you know when we're when we've been studying the tanya you know you primarily think about this as 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 the the jews struggle to overcome the darkness within um and it's it's a it's a very personal thing right and yes. and this, this this whole study and this whole book is trying to help us understand ourselves and and come to terms and, and defeat the evil inclination, right? And so I kind of separated that concept with external evil, like the Holocaust. But I think in, in this case, the concept of just in, in general, bringing light into a, a dark place to dispel that darkness is really an extension of, of what we're doing internally for you know, exactly. our own struggles. Exactly, they, they come hand in hand. I'll tell you something interesting now that you mentioned that. The second section of Tanya is so different than the section, the first section of Tanya that we're learning now. The first section of Tanya has 53 chapters. The second section has, oh God, I think it's either 10 or 12 chapters. And it's such a different. Second book? Second. Yeah. It's called Shar Hayichud Vemuna, the gate of, of, of faith and unity. The contents of the book, it's a little bit more philosophical than rather than personal. Because the goal of Tanya, the first section, is trying to discover God within ourselves. Um, the goal of the second section of Tanya is trying to discover God within the world. They're essentially the same exact thing. One is philosophical because it's not about me, it's about the world. And one is personal, because it's about me, but they're both doing the same thing. How can I find God? Where is God? The answer is he's everywhere. I just have to dig deep. And in this section of Tanya, I have to remove whatever's obstructing me from, from and desensitizing me. And in the second section of Tanya, it's discovering him in the world. Seeing how the world is an expression of him, and how the world is his body. He's the soul to the world. So in, in the annual cycle of studying the Tanya, does it does that cycle include the second section of Tanya as well? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And when when we finish with book one, are we going to study the second book together? Um, perhaps. Sounds like you want to. <laughs> we could. We could. Um, I want to go back to you, Mike. I want to go back to your question. So. Um, I'm just just thinking that maybe identifying the darkness helps you discover an, as little light as there is, finding the light and growing the light, and identifying the light to make more light. Even with the Holocaust or with internal things that are going on inside based on external factors, if you can find more, whatever exists, and grow it and identify the light, then you then then you won't only see the darkness and it'll grow and 
take over the darkness. So even in the worst situation, you can have light and you can find the light and make a point of like fight for that light. I don't know if it's, yeah. 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 You know, emphasizing the light, that the existing light, light that's there. Yeah. Which is really, what's that about, all about? We're not really inventing light. We have the light within. We're kind of just uncovering it so it can shine. You have to find out how, where you can find more sources of light to actually grow the light. Mm. Right. Make it your own light. Yeah. Exactly. We're not opening more windows, finding more areas in our life where we can shades, more layers. And you know, and and as we'll elaborate later in chapter thirty-two, this is really the essence of love your fellow, which is actually this week's Torah portion. If I've removed those layers. And now my body is not obstructing me from my soul. It's expressing my soul. So I'm seeing life from the soul uh, paradigm perspective. That's how I'm going to see others. So now my body doesn't separate me from others. It's, it's a conduit for my soul. It connects me to others. Where do we see this idea? In Torah, this idea of removing obstruction, removing this darkness to allow the light to shine. The example that the Altar Rebbe gave, which is page 338, is by the spies. The Jews left Egypt. They receive the Torah on Mount Sinai. They're making their way, journeying toward the Holy Land. And Moses, Moshe sends 12 spies to scout out the land. 10 out of 12 messed up. How did they mess up? The two good spies were Joshua, Yeshua, and Kalev. These two guys were the good guys. The other 10 spies, and by the way, the 12 spies corresponded to the 12 tribes. It was a representative of each of the 12 of each tribe. Well, also, isn't the 10 how we got the number for a minion? Yes. Yes. It's a good thing that all 12 didn't mess up. Otherwise, exactly. we'd have more trouble getting minions. <laughs> so when, when God reprimanded, when God reprimanded these 10 spies, yeah, it would be harder, huh? <laughs> I just got that, sir. <laughs> I'm slow. When, when God <laughs> reprimanded 10 spies, he called them a congregation. Talmud tells us from here we derive that a congregation means 10. And, and the, the idea of a congregation is rectifying their mess up, which is by the way, re, one of the reasons why women aren't part of them, aren't officially part of the count of 10, because women didn't mess up. It was the men who messed up. We always mess up. <laughs> it's always the men. And it's really good the women didn't mess up too, or we'd, we'd never have a minion. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so the men, the men messed up. God, how did they mess up? So what happened was their job was to scout out the land, was to be 
relay what they saw so we know how to get into Israel the right way. Their job was not to give over their opinion. That wasn't their job. They overstepped their boundaries and they gave opinions. There's giants in the land. In their eyes, we appear as grasshoppers. The fruits are extra large. It's a scary place. No way we're going to make it into this land. They doubted God. They doubted God. They literally doubted God. They were desensitized. Their faith has been desensitized. They, they were desensitized from faith. What happens next? God gets angry at them and says to the Jewish people who were um, following into the trap of these spies, if you guys don't think I can take you into Israel, fine. I'm not taking you into Israel. That's what you want. All of a sudden, they were inspired and said, no, please take us. Take us. We're going to go to Israel. We believe in you. Our faith is firm. Forgive us. What happened? What changed? What was different? How, were they, how was their faith fortified? Where did they get that sensitivity? What? They could see. They had this ability to see. Where did they get this ability to see this clarity? There were no miracles. It's not like God showed them a miracle suddenly. But he, he reprimanded them. Because he reprimanded them. He broke that barrier that was obstructing them. There was a barrier, just like on a personal level. We have a barrier that's obstructing us from being aware of our faith, from being conscious of our faith. And as soon as we remove the barrier and get in touch with our souls, we begin to see life differently. God did the same thing. He reprimanded them. That difficult conversation that we're supposed to have with our animal soul, that's what God had with them. Broke through that klippa, allowed the faith to shine, it became firm in their faith. That's all it took. That's all it was. The Talmud says, and we quoted this earlier several times in Tanya, that a person will only sin if there's a spirit of folly, a spirit, a delusional spirit. If the delusional spirit overcomes them, they're going to sin. Otherwise, the default of a person is to not sin because you have a soul. You have this drive. We have this clear direction. We have, we have a delusion. That confuses us, that blinds us, that masks us, and we need to remove it. Is that the uh, opponent, the Satan? Um, yeah, basically, it's the the our evil impulse. It's our negative impulse. It's our our animal soul masking us. And what God did by reprimanding them was reminded them that this darkness. Has no substance to it. It does. That's not what the reality. And, and the light illuminated out that darkness, shined out that darkness. They regained their faith. This is such a powerful lesson in life. Very often we feel like we have doubts. And we feel, do I really believe? Is this stuff even true? And what the Al Tareb is telling us is, yes, you do believe. That's default. Your default is you believe because you're a Jew. That's your default. The doubts are something external that are obstructing you. You don't need to get faith. 
You need to get rid of the doubts. The faith is there. It's just we have these, we have, we're, we're desensitized. So let's just redevelop, let's develop sensitivity. That's all it is. When we have doubts, you know what a person needs? When a person, when a Jew doubts their relationship with Judaism, what they need is not a philosophical conversation. That's not what they need. They need two things. Number one, inspiration. Number two, getting rid of whatever is desensitizing them. It's just because we're desensitized. That's all it is. There's no such thing. The Al-Tadeba clearly maintains that there's no such thing as a Jew who does not believe. There's a Jew who is desensitized from being aware of their souls. And that happens to everybody who's not a tzaddik um, to varying degrees. And will play out in different um, ways. But the soul's always there. The soul's there. We're never totally lost. We just have to break through that darkness. We have to break through that barrier. We just have to become a little bit more sensitive. We need more fire, but we need a more receptive log. We need to just be a little bit more receptive, a little bit more open. The chachma of the soul. Back to the chachma. What is chachma? Chachma is wisdom, but what that's not the word we use what was the word inquiry right the ability to be open to something larger than ourselves to be receptive but if we're so into the body we're so into our vision for existence rather god's than god's vision for existence we become desensitized I'll tell you a story it's so much of a story it's more of a somebody had a private audience with the Lubavitcher Rebbe and was telling him the Rebbe how he had his doubts in his connection to Judaism his connection to God his belief in Tori and all these different doubts he says what do I do and the Rebbe told him something such very eye-opening said, when somebody's hungry, you know what happens when somebody's hungry? You start to have a philosophical conversation with them. They get hangry. Never didn't say those words. But if somebody's hungry, and you try having a philosophical conversation, they get hangry. It's useless. It's counterproductive. You know what they need? Food. They need food. They don't need to learn about food. They need to eat the food. Somebody's hungry, somebody's thirsty, and you start describing and explaining the recipe and having this whole deep conversation. Biological, chemical construct of this food, the molecules in it, I don't know. It, you're going to turn them hangry. You're not going to help them. They need the food. They don't need you to talk about the food. When somebody's having a doubt in their faith, they're spiritually hungry. They need is not to talk about the food they need to eat it not to talk about god but to ingest him so to speak to do a mitzvah to learn torah just get involved just jump in you would have felt fed your soul by doing that 
then you can have the philosophical conversation, understanding what we're doing. And the person will be more likely to be receptive because their soul has been satiated. Rather than just getting frustrated by a conversation that you're not open to having because you're hungry and you're thirsty, feed them. Then have the conversation. And the same applies not to them, to ourselves as well. There's times where we're feeling desensitized. Let's feed ourselves. Then we can learn, sit down, study, understand. But first we need to feed ourselves, do the mitzvah, study that Torah. Conclude with one more story. There was a, a chassid, a follower of the Tzemach Tzedek. The Tzemach Tzedek, that was his title. That wasn't his name. His name was Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. He was a great-grandfather to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, maybe great-great-grandfather to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, same name. Same first name and last name. His wife had the same first and last name as well. He was married to a Chaim Moshka Schneerson. Great-grandfather. He was known as the Tzemach Tzedek because that was one of the most famous uh, works, his books that he wrote. He had a chassid, a follower, who grew up in the Hasidic shtetl, very aware of Tanya, was very aware of Hasidic wisdom, very aware, had very deep roots in his Jewish um, heritage, experientially. Knew the whole shebang, yet he still experienced doubts. He was desensitized a little bit, and it bothered him. He felt like he was inadequate. What kind of person am I? And he tells the tzemach tzedek, "I'm worried and I'm, and I'm scared. I have these doubts." The tzemach tzedek kind of blows him off. Says, "No, no. Whatever, Rabbi. You serious? What do you mean, whatever?" I don't even know if I believe in God. I don't even know if I believe in the Torah. I don't know if I believe in this whole purpose of creation. And, the... and it's frustrating him. The Tzemach Tzedek looks at him. Yeah, whatever. He's Rabbi, kidding me? I don't know if God exists. I don't know if this whole thing, maybe this is just a cult. Maybe I'm just indoctrinated. Who says any of this is real? Tzemach Tzedek looks at him and says, why is this bothering you so much? He says, because I'm Jewish. He says, okay, good. Then you're fine. You're in a good place. The person had doubts. The doubts bothered him. Because he knew that they were just a distraction to him. Tzemach Tzedek essentially highlighted the fact that his doubts didn't define him. They distracted him, which means there was a deeper depth. There was his Jewish soul. It was just being obstructed, being disturbed. And here's what the Altar Rebbe says. Um, top of 340. Top line of 340. From this, we can all learn a lesson from the spies. Really from everything that we learned. That when a doubtful thought of faith pops into your head, Remember that they're just words emanating from the Sitra Achra. They're like darkness, have no real substance to them. They're there just for the purpose of motivating us to intentionally shine light. Right? 
It's just the Sitra Acha, which has exerted itself over the divine soul, but Jews are inherently believers, the children of believers. Belief, faith is essential. It's something we have. It's not something we have to attain. What we do need to attain is consciousness of this faith. According to many halachic authorities, um, and I'm talking about more ancient halachic authorities, commentaries on the Talmud, etc. Many maintain that there's no mitzvah, there's 613 mitzvahs, and there is no mitzvah to believe in God. If you look in the beginning of Maimonides' halachic, 14-volume halachic compendium, the very first mitzvah he said is to know God, not to believe in Him, to know Him. To know, we said in chapter 3 of Tanya, what does knowledge mean? To become intimately aware. The faith is there. The belief is there because we have that soul connection. Our job is to become aware of that faith that we already have. To become conscious, to internalize it. And part of that requires removing that obstruction that we may be experiencing. So we're not desensitized. my story and I'm sticking to it. Good story. I like it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any thoughts, questions, comments, or controversy? Have to take it outside. I'll have to take it outside, huh? Social. Di we'll have to have social distancing. A social. <laughs> I'll just take the Zoom outside. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> okay, ne next next week we're gonna do chapter thirty. It's not. I don't think it's such a long chapter. Um, although I didn't look at it here. Maybe it, yeah, it's not such a long chapter. Chapter thirty is incredible. It's continuing the subject that we're on, developing sensitivity, but this is in our relationship to others, in our relationship to people, and it's an incredible, profound chapter, and it, it's gonna be exciting. It's gonna be fun. Stop the recording here.